Well, good morning. Good to see you all today. Welcome to Solid Rock. I think that scripture reading is, yeah, it is on the screen behind me. This text from Luke chapter 6 represents one of the most radical things that we find not only in the Gospels, but really in our entire Bible. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. He says, are you struck on the cheek? Well, then offer your other cheek. Somebody steal your cloak? Give up your shirt as well. And, and not only are the ideas represented here a subversion of the common human disposition of reciprocity, where what I get from you is what I am required to give back to you, but it, it goes way beyond that as well. Because Jesus' instruction here doesn't stop at sort of a neutral disposition to the one who has caused harm. No, he says, repay evil with good. It really is radical, and if, if we're honest with ourselves, I, I think it seems impossible to embody this ethic on a consistent basis. I don't know about you, but I have a difficult time saying a prayer for the one who cuts me off in traffic. And obviously, that's not a personal offense or a severe offense in any way. But then Jesus goes on and with the famous golden rule where he says, treat others as you wish to be treated. An idea that is represented in Leviticus chapter 19 as well, where it says, love your neighbors as you love yourself. So Jesus, as we continue working through Luke, Luke puts all of that together. When somebody asks him, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, on the surface, this message of neighborly love and the message of enemy love, it seems pretty hip in our day and age, it is a saying that will sell a t-shirt or two. But what Jesus is suggesting here is much more than just having positive feelings about a person or positive feelings about a group of people. It's much more practical. It's much more specific, albeit seemingly impossible. I mean, loving my enemy, when I think about it on a personal level, that sounds great if I limit that to a group of people that others hate. Do, do you know what I mean? I think we can trick ourselves into believing that we love our enemies by loving somebody else's enemy, a person or a group that, that I have no difficulty loving. Do, do you know what I'm saying? But what does it even mean? if it's not specific? What does it mean unless we are talking about actual people who have offended or, or hurt me in some way? And I think this is where a lot of the difficulty comes in because oftentimes our enemies may be those who are at one time quite close to us. And I think that is where enemy love becomes much more challenging because the offenses we have suffered are much more personal than getting cut off in traffic. It's not at all like an offense from a stranger. It likely involves some damaged trust because of a betrayal. 
Well, as we head back to the Old Testament, our Old Testament reading for today, we're going to find that this is precisely what we see play out in the famous story of Joseph that is told in the book of Genesis, our Old Testament text for today. Many of you know this story, I'm sure. It's a long, complicated story of troubled, unhealthy, and even violent family relationships. And as we explore this story, I think we're going to find some clues as to how this sort of enemy love that Jesus talks about might be possible. To do so, we're going to have to go through the story because we can't understand Joseph's response from our text today without first understanding everything that precedes it. So first, a brief synopsis. Actually, not brief. A synopsis of the story. Jacob, who is one of the patriarchs of our faith, at our midweek prayer service, we always address our prayers at the beginning of our time to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, one of the patriarchs of our faith, had 12 sons, and the youngest of those sons was named Joseph. Joseph was sort of a golden child born to his parents in their old age, which automatically gave him that favored position in their hearts. He was also a boy who had a strong moral compass, which I think further endeared him to his parents. And on one occasion, that moral compass prompted him to give a negative report to his father about his brother's bad behavior. So if you're taking count, all of these things are sort of adding up, and it's getting to a tipping point here. So he's favored. He gets that wonderful, colorful coat from his father that is a constant, visible reminder of his favored status. In the minds of his brothers, he's also a snitch. And don't forget his dreams. Joseph loved to dream, and on one occasion, he has these dreams that, that depict not only his brothers, but even his parents bowing down to him in subordination. And if that wasn't bad enough, he has the audacity to share the content of these dreams around the family dinner table. I've had these dreams where you all are bowing down to me. Do you, do you want to hear all of the wonderful details? So predictably, the, the flames of the brothers' jealousy are fanned, and they devise a plan to kill this dreamer. Let's just end his life. Things are not improving. They're only getting worse. Let's take care of this and move on as though nothing happened. Fortunately, cooler heads prevail. One, one of the brothers convinces the rest, Let, let's not kill him. That's a bit extreme. Let's just throw him in a pit. He might die down there, but at least we eliminate some of the blood that would be on our hands. So they throw him in a pit, which eventually leads to selling him into slavery to some travelers who happen to be passing by. When you think about it, this is really a, a series of rather unfortunate events. And sure, I think the argument can be made that Joseph brought some of this on himself. I mean, maybe he is a bit immature in flaunting his favored status before his brothers. Who, who knows? But even if that's the case, he has still undeniably been victimized by those who should have loved him, victimized by those who should have cared for him. Here he is, bloodied and alone at the bottom of a pit, essentially waiting to die, and then sold as a slave by his own family. So clearly things are not going well 
for Joseph. But in this, we are being set up for what many consider to be the greatest dramatic twist in the Old Testament, which we don't find for eight chapters. It's eight chapters, about 10 years of terrible things that occur to Joseph. We'll get there in a moment in Genesis 45. But at this point, Joseph's bad luck is only just beginning. He is sold into slavery by his vindictive brothers who then slaughter a goat and use the blood from that goat to cover his colorful coat to convince their father that a wild animal must have killed him. Of course, he has already been sold to the Midianites who then sold him to the captain of the guard in Egypt, a man named Potiphar. And thus, the pieces of salvation for Jacob's family and the pieces of God's plan of redemption begin falling into place rather surprisingly. In chapter 39, we find Joseph living in Egypt with his new master, and we are told that in the middle of all of that, God was with Joseph, which seems to be quite a striking claim that is repeated throughout this story, that God was with Joseph. It doesn't seem like it. He's thrown in a pit. He's sold into slavery. It doesn't seem like he's favored in any way, shape, or form, but this is such an important truth that sort of provides the foundation for this story, a story that is filled with heartache and suffering, but in the middle of it all, we are reminded that God was with Joseph. We need to keep that idea in our thoughts as we make our way through the story. But I, I think we would also be wise to allow that truth to ground us in every season. Whatever we might be facing, whether that's uncertainty or failure or suffering or abandonment by those we love, some sense of betrayal, in it all, God is with us, even when it doesn't seem like his presence is anywhere to be found. So back to the story. When when Potiphar sees that Joseph is successful in everything he does, he promotes him. And he promotes him again. Joseph climbs that ladder unbelievably fast and is soon in charge of everything that Potiphar owned, which is already quite a contrast from his place at the bottom of the pit from the beginning of the story. But unfortunately, that pattern of rising and falling is going to continue because Potiphar wasn't the only one who took notice of Joseph. Potiphar's wife, we are told, also had eyes for Joseph and continually tries to persuade him to sleep with her. Every day this occurs. It's actually a fairly risque part of this passage. And Joseph is said to have continually refused these advances because he insists to do so would be a sin against my God. Well, one day all of the conditions are right for compromise. The conditions are right for sexual passions to take over. Joseph is attending his duties as normal, but nobody else is home. Potiphar's not there. The other servants aren't there. Only Potiphar's wife is there. And we're told that she implores him again. He refuses. She grabs his cloak, which if you're thinking back to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, this is maybe the one occasion where it's okay to go against what Jesus tells us to do. If somebody takes your cloak, offer your shirt as well. Joseph did not offer his shirt as well, or else this story would probably take us in a very different direction. He leaves his cloak behind, 
which um, leads to some more negative outcomes. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Joseph's obedience, though, his willingness to allow his godly devotion to de- guide every decision, whatever the circumstances he faced looked like, it really is quite remarkable because for Joseph, this was not an opportunity for moral licensing. I mean, Joseph had an argument to be made. Look, I can rationalize this behavior because things are really tough for me right now. I'm suffering. I would be justified in an immoral action because I need a momentary escape from the pain. Or maybe taking it in the opposite direction. Maybe, well, things seem to work out in my favor anyway. Maybe obedience isn't going to be all that important for me after all because it's not doing much for me in the moment. But one thing I think our minds are taken to in this detail of the obedience of Joseph is that obedience for us is not about what it does for us in the moment. Obedience is about who it helps us become over the course of our lives. So the script is flipped here in Genesis, and Potiphar's wife has Joseph's cloak in her hands, and accusations are made against Joseph. Look, he tried to take advantage of me. When he screamed, he ran away and left his cloak. I've got the incriminating evidence right here, and this lands Joseph once again, in prison. He's put in prison, but that pattern reemerges where misfortune is then erased and he is elevated. The warden of the prison increases Joseph's responsibility. Joseph has success after success, and things once again start looking pretty good. Joseph's life is sort of this roller coaster of success and ease, which is halted abruptly with dramatic misfortune. Well, as time passes, Joseph is in prison. Eventually, he's not the only one there because Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker also end up in prison with him. And one night, each of those individuals have a dream and they're distraught because they know those dreams must mean something, but they can't ascertain what the meaning might be. And Joseph says, well, you're in luck because interpretations of dreams belong to God. Tell tell me your dreams and I will give you the interpretation. He interprets the dreams. His interpretation comes to pass and he begs the cupbearer, look, when when you get out of here, please remember me. I, I have done this service to you. Remember me and convince Pharaoh to have mercy on me. But if Joseph's past is any indication. Of course, his, as his fortune goes, the cupbearer forgets about Joseph, at least for a couple of years. Until one night when Pharaoh has a dream, nobody can interpret the dream, and the cupbearer remembers, a couple of years ago, I was in prison, and this young man interpreted my dreams, and his interpretation came true. Let, let's summons Joseph, and Joseph comes and interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, those those dreams foretell the seven years of plenty, which would then be followed by seven years of famine throughout the region. This interpretation earns Joseph a position of honor within Egypt once again, only this time he's not in charge just of a single household, but he's in charge of the entire land. He had Pharaoh's signet ring, he had beautiful clothing, anything he wanted was at his fingertips. And he executes his duties in an incredible way. He 
takes advantage of the seven years of abundance to prepare and store away resources for the seven years of famine which were coming, which in the end saves not only the people of Egypt, but coincidentally will save his family as well. Because although his family, they weren't Egyptian, they weren't from the land of Egypt, but nobody in the entire region could find food. Everybody is coming to Egypt, and that includes Joseph's brothers. They come to Egypt looking for sustenance, and what they find is the one who is responsible for doling out the resources of Egypt is none other than their brother. So through a series of events, the brothers discover that the man with the power to save them is the brother they sold into slavery. And as that dawns on them, surely they must realize that it is time to pay for their past sins. I mean, everything bad in Joseph's life can be traced back to that initial personal offense at the hands of his brothers. His brothers were angry and jealous and vindictive, and they sell Joseph into slavery and his life pretty much unravels from that point. I mean, he has some high points, but he also has a lot of low points. It's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, over a decade of heartbreak, suffering, and pain. And the source of all of that was easy to identify. I mean, none of it would have happened if it wasn't for his brothers. The enemy was clear. The enemy had a name And the enemy was looking into his eyes in this moment. So the question the reader is left with, what's Joseph going to do in this situation when faced with his enemy? So finally, we make it to our text for today. Genesis chapter 45, beginning in verse 1 to set us up. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. I love this scene in the story. It really is the perfect scenario for a day of reckoning. It it would almost be like a hypothetical situation of a kid in elementary school who is bullied mercilessly, and then one day as they age, the perpetrator and the victim meet again, only power has shifted. Maybe in this hypothetical, the, the victim from elementary school has become a judge and is now responsible for doling out some punishment for a crime committed in adulthood by his childhood nemesis. And as the bully begins to realize who is sitting in the judge's seat, you can almost see the blood draining from his face because obviously any chance at mercy is now gone. All all of the violent indiscretions from his past begin flooding back to his mind. He's filled with sorrow and regret and realizes that he is about to finally pay for all of his sins. Face to face with the ones he tormented, only now the victim has the power of life and death. It's similar to what we find taking place here in Genesis with Joseph and his brothers. Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, 
Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into, in, sold into Egypt. In other words, in case you don't remember, this is what you did to me. You set into motion this series of events that should have ruined my life. Everything bad in my life can be traced back to that moment when you threw me in the pit. Surely the punishment is going to be severe as Joseph brings up this evil action. Verse 3, and I'm sorry, verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. The punishment should be severe, but Joseph says, don't worry, I can look back now and I see that God was working through your objectively evil actions. That there is no excuse for what has occurred here, but God worked through that evil to bring salvation. Verse 6, for the famine has been in the land these these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not... Terry, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So what might we do with the example that we find from Joseph here in the book of Genesis as it relates to the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6. Maybe they seem disconnected initially, but I think there are some points of connection. I think, first of all, Joseph, in his example, shows us that it is in laying aside resentment that we find the ability to begin to love our enemies in a way that is meaningful. Laying aside resentment. This is not the sentimental or theoretical enemy love that is so popular today. This is a love that seems impossible. As we have walked through all of the bloody details of the story of Joseph, it seems impossible or rather unlikely that he would respond in this way when faced with his enemies. So I think a question we might ask as we reflect on our gospel reading and the story of Joseph is how might we lay aside resentment? If laying aside resentment is what ultimately makes enemy love possible, how can we do that? Because, let's face it, we all have legitimate reasons to be filled with resentment. Every one of us. Legitimate reasons. It's a part of being human. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to lay aside that resentment or at the very least to refuse to allow our resentment to fester and to begin to dominate our lives. Because when resentment and hatred are allowed to grow, they begin to control us. I think it's easy for us to think that holding on to my resentment 
through that, maybe I can cause some of the same pain for my enemy that they caused for me, but it never happens. It only ends up increasing and prolonging our own pain. So how can we follow the teachings of Jesus? That radical call to enemy love. Again, I think we find a clue in this story in Genesis. We can lay aside resentment. We can only lay aside resentment by trusting that God is with us. That, that small detail that it's tucked away in this story from beginning to end, that God was with Joseph, even when it seemed like God was nowhere to be found, trusting that God is with us, trusting that God may be using the dark, death-like places, the dark, death-like experiences for good. Not that God is in any ways the cause of evil, not that God is the cause of the darkness or the death-like experience. I do not believe that to be true, but I do believe and trust Sometimes it is more a matter of trusting that this is true than belief, but I do trust that God will bring something good from the ashes. That God will bring something complete and whole from your brokenness. But that good can only be embraced, at least it can only be embraced fully when we refuse to remain engulfed in our hatred, when we cling to our hatred and resentment, we, we are never going to be able to experience or even understand the good that God might bring from a very dark situation. I like how Pastor Rich Lotus put it. He said, the statement, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will, is misleading at best. So Jesus was at the center of God's will, but ended up on a cross. The center of God's will is rarely the safest place, but it's always the most significant place to be. So if we think about Joseph's story, his life, that decade of heartache and pain, for Joseph, the center of God's will took him into some unfamiliar and quite difficult territory, and I think it will for us as well. It will at the very least always call us to live in a manner that at times feels like an affront to our dignity. I mean, how can I forgive this person? How can I love this person when I have these legitimate and long-lasting scars that they are responsible for? How is that even possible to love that person? And I do think this is where we need to be careful because this is not about continuing to allow somebody who has victimized you to, to get close in that way. It's not about brushing something under the rug or excusing those evil actions. Not at all. This is not about continuing to allow that evil to remain and victimize you in new ways, especially when there hasn't been contrition. Enemy love does not eradicate the need for justice. If you have been hurt or you have seen somebody you love dearly hurt, you have probably felt that desire for justice well up within you, and I think that's a Christian impulse. 
We're actually going to be talking about this in much more detail during our Lenten series, actually near the end of that series that will begin in just a couple of weeks. But that desire for justice, I think, is a Christian impulse. But what we do with that impulse, what we do with that desire for justice, where we allow that impulse to take us, says a lot about our Christian formation. Are we allowing that desire for justice, which is a Christian impulse, are we allowing it to take us in a way that takes us further away from the ethic of Jesus, where we are allowing our hearts to be gripped with hatred and resentment and a lack of love and a lack of forgiveness? This is what I want to leave us with today. Kevin, if you want to come up. As we reflect on the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6, which we started with this morning, And as we continue to think about the example of Joseph over these eight or nine chapters in Genesis, my challenge to you, my challenge to me, don't allow hate, don't allow resentment to fester. Enemy love does not eradicate a need for justice, but we are not the ones in charge of doling out justice. As followers of Jesus, we believe that that Christ alone is the judge. Don't allow hate and resentment to fester. It will destroy you from the inside out. It will. So trust that God is with you in those moments when it seems like God is nowhere to be found. Trust that God is with you. And trust that God alone will restore your situation. Would you stand? Austin, if you want to join me as we prepare for the Eucharist. I want to say a prayer for us. Uh, Just by way of some practical instruction, we are going to move into a time of celebrating the Eucharist as we gather around the Lord's table. Receiving the sustenance and the life that we so desperately need found in the body and the blood of Jesus. We invite you to participate in this celebration with us. If you're new or visiting, you don't have to be a part of our congregation. We invite you to feast at this table. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. There will be somebody here to present the elements to you. We'll speak the words over you, the body of Christ broken for you body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, you can receive the elements on your own. I want to say a prayer for us as we come to the table today. Lord Jesus, as we think about the story of Joseph, and we, as we see some points of contact between that ancient story and our lives and the situations we face. Today, Lord, we pray for justice. Forgive us for the times when we have been responsible for pain in others' lives. Lord, forgive us our trespasses. We pray today for those in our world who are victims of violence victims of sexual exploitation, economic exploitation, those who are victimized in any other way, we pray for your justice. And we believe that one day justice will roll down. 
In the meantime, we pray that you would guard our hearts. Guard our hearts from being overcome by hatred for those who have hurt us. Enable us to do the impossible, to follow your teachings we read from Luke chapter 6 today. Enable us to do the impossible and lay aside our resentment, to love, to bless, to pray for, to actively seek the good for the one who has hurt us. Lord Jesus, this is an impossible task and we need your grace and your mercy. And so we come to your table, the perfect example of enemy love. We pray that through this meal, would change our hearts. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table of the Lord this morning?